You know, if you thought we were done with announcements, I've got some bad news. We have two more announcements for you. Uh, the first one is that uh, the QR code doesn't seem to be working for everybody. So if it's not working for you, that is not your fault. Uh, that is technology's fault. Uh, and so you can either go to your app store, whether however you get it through Apple or through Google, or if you go to the website, there's a link there too, I think, that Nikki said. Is that right? Great. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that we've got exciting news for the Coastline community, and that is that Andrew and Britt Ferris are currently in labor, uh, which is really exciting. So uh, I want to pray for them, and we'll just bring the prayer to the front part of the sermon. So when they had LaRue, their first baby, it was a very long, very hard, very intense, scary labor. So uh, we haven't heard anything scary yet, so not to scare you, uh, but they're certainly worth praying for. So let me just focus us, and then we'll, we'll get going on the sermon. Lord. Uh, we just thank you for all the things that you have done in Coastline, Lord, already. Uh, Lord, we still kind of qualify as a baby church, a church plant. And yet, Lord, to double our year in giving, uh, Lord, to be able to give some of that money away to Benny and, and City Gateway, Lord, to, to see what you're doing amongst us amidst all the challenges that we face, Lord, of COVID, like our second big bout of COVID that we've kind of had to walk through. Lord, we're just grateful, and we just give you praise and thanks. And uh, Lord, we pray for the Pharisees, Lord, that you'd be the Brit and this new baby, and that, God, this would be uh, just a complete opposite of experience in labor, that, Lord, this would be smooth, and, Lord, this would unite her and Andrew's marriage together in just a, a closer way as they have this experience together, and, Lord, we pray for just a, uh, a joyful, healthy addition to their family and to the Coastline family here uh, by the end of the night. We pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You know, uh, it's strange to say it, but I have spent the entire day celebrating Christmas today. Uh, I know that Christmas passed uh, a few weeks ago for many of you, but in our family, it actually didn't, and that's because we had COVID hit our family about a couple days before uh, Christmas Day. Uh, and like a lot of families out there, we're a combination of those who are vaxxed and unvaxxed, and as you try to navigate how do you handle this, the holidays between exposure, what's good for people, what's not good, we just decided to kind of delay it for a couple days. What ended up happening, though, was that the one part of our family that had COVID, once they got kind of past it, then the other part of the family got it. And once they kind of got past it, then my family got it. And so we've just kind of had this slow creeping COVID that just kept pushing off Christmas further and further and further until we felt like we could finally get together. Now, when praise God, when, when we got it, it wasn't bad at all. It was the mild form that you hear about, and yet it, it can't help but make you kind of a little bit panicked when you, when you hear it. Uh, so last week I was preaching. I had three kids who had COVID, and I had no symptoms, but I was so scared that I was going to pollute the world that I spent the entire time up there uh, in the loft, and I came down only to preach, and then I avoided all of you because I didn't want to give you the plague. And this is just kind of how it is, right? Like, we are obsessive about every tickle in our throat, about every slight headache, because we don't want it to be us. Now, moving Christmas for our family was a huge deal. Uh, I know Christmas is a big deal for every family, but for really Melinda's side of the family, it could not possibly be a bigger deal. Uh, so in the early days of our marriage, uh, 8 a.m. Christmas morning, we're up, we're driving up there to her family's house. It is a huge breakfast. It is, uh, there's a room that is sealed off with presents and you have to drop a curtain, right? Like it's the Holy of Holies that we're invited into to receive the presents 
there were years where there was like no less than 100 presents opened up by all members of the family. It is just as special of a day as you could imagine. It is like going to Santa's workshop. It is like we travel to the North Pole. And so for our family, to cancel this became this thing that was a huge deal, and it's something that just really sort of stung. And in that time, between when we canceled Christmas and when we had it today, was, was just those two weeks of chaos. And those two weeks of chaos are one of those things that were harder than usual. And I think we went through a couple different phases with it. One was the sense of, we've been so good. I mean, we, we took the shots, we wore the masks, we bought the hand sanitizer. We were one of those people who were leaving our groceries outside, wiping down our groceries. We had done everything perfect. And to have it still come to your home was something that was massively discouraging. Then we're in the spot of trying to figure out when can our kids go back to school? When can they not go back to school? We're trying to get tests, but tests are now hoarded more than like toilet paper ever once was. So you're trying to figure out when can they go back? The rules kept changing. We got one kid back, but then the next one couldn't go back because the rules changed. We felt this pressure there, and you're trying to make the right decision, but you have no idea if you're actually making the right decision. And what's the right decision today is not necessarily the right decision tomorrow. And with all of that came the realization that Melinda and I also said we we're going to have a dry January. So we didn't even have wine to keep us company through all the ups and downs of the entire thing. And one evening in particular, Melinda and I were sitting around and the whole thing just hit us. We've been keeping our kids in the house for two weeks as we try to contain this whole thing. And it felt like we were just on this endless treadmill of outbreaks and feeling the effects of it. And it just felt like normal was never going to happen again. We had that feeling that night of going, we're never going to get back to normal. It's always going to be like this. It all just felt immensely futile to us. And it felt like you could just feel kind of the depression slowly creeping in around the house. And I'm willing to bet you've been there maybe a couple times now. Uh, and if you haven't been there, it's probably coming for you soon because it can just feel like such an endless cycle of this pattern. And I think we're all immensely exhausted with it. And we wonder just what's the point of even trying to avoid this thing anymore. And, and maybe... Maybe it's not COVID that's got you feeling futile. I think we experience futility in lots of places of our lives. Uh, and that could happen in areas of our own health, that I'm never going to be healthy again. I'm always going to feel like this. I'm never going to get back to what I once was doing. I'm never going to be able to do that again. We could, we could feel futility in our relationships, uh, that the relationship is ruined, that it's never going to go back to what it once was. We can feel futile with, with people that they're never going to change. I guess they're always going to be like this. We can feel futility with ourselves of, I guess this is just who I am. I guess it's just this is the way it's going to be. Or we can look at our circumstances and think it's been this way for so long. It's just not going to change. And I just have to accept what it is. We feel this even in terms of with spirituality. If I've been praying for that person's salvation... For so long. And look, there's just no point any longer. It's been 30 years. It's been 40 years. There's no point in even praying for them uh, because I'm not going to see change. And if there is going to be change, it's probably only going to be change for the worse, not change for the better. 
Now, these are all feelings that we feel. This is how I have felt at times. It is how I felt uh, this week. And as a result, I think there's just such a blessing in the passage that we're going to be at today because it really asks the question, is anything ever futile in the eyes of God? That if Jesus sits on the throne, is anything ever truly futile? Is anything ever really done? Is anything ever really have no chance And out of the passage, we see that there is no such thing as futility in the kingdom. That there is always hope, that there is always promise, that there is always something that God can do because he works outside our realities. He is bigger than our circumstances. He is bigger than the roadblocks that we face. And so although you and I can feel that things are futile, we can feel that things are hopeless, in God's economy, they truly never are. John Piper says this about the book of Acts. He says, the message of the book of Acts is that Jesus Christ is not dead, and he is not distant, and he is not silent, and he is not weak, and he is not uninterested in the world and the progress of his mission in your life. He is alive, and what he began to do in his earthly life, he is continuing to do today. He is full of surprises for churches, and for nations, and for families, and for individual people. Man, is that a good word or or what? And that is incredible. He is full of surprises for churches and nations and families and individual people. In short, Acts reminds us again and again that things can change and that people can change and that you can change. And in fact, the sort of change that we experience in life, it happens oftentimes in two different ways. There's fast change and there is slow change. We're going to see both of those things happen in the life of a man named Saul, uh, who has just experienced a conversion experience last week. Now, throughout this sermon, I'm going to call him Saul and Paul. They are the same person. I said this last week. That's just me messing up. At this moment, he is only known as Saul, but he has hit a moment of conversion and is changing everything for him. And there's hope that that could change for us as well. So if you have your Bibles, would you open, open them up to Acts chapter 9. We're going to be verse 19, and I'll ask you to stand with me here as I read this. We're going to pick this up in the second half of 19. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God, All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem amongst those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Now after many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy amongst the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him, but his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he told him how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord, and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus." So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. And when the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers." 
This is God's word. You can be seated. Hey, Steve, if you get a chance, can you just bring down, it's got a little bit of ring to it again. If we can try to solve that, that'd be, that'd be great. So one of the things we're going to see here, uh, Andy, you can grab a seat. You can stand if you, you want to. You're in the front row, you just might not notice. Other people notice you. One of the things that happens here in this passage and just in our story, as I've said, is that change happens slow and fast. Now, I want to talk really quickly about how change happens really quickly for him. When Saul comes to faith, he really walks through four very distinct phases in terms of his journey with Christ. The very first place that he is when we first met him is that he lives in a place of opposition to Jesus. Uh, He did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He believed that Jesus was an imposter. He believed that Jesus did not meet the criteria of what the Messiah was supposed to do. The Messiah was supposed to come to the greatest of Israel and was to overthrow the Roman authorities and was to take the throne and was to be a political savior. And Jesus is this carpenter who's itinerant and he's preaching and he's healing. And rather than overthrowing the Romans, oftentimes he's challenging the Jewish authorities. So for Saul, he just thinks there is no way this man could have been the Messiah. And when he sees Jesus, what he sees is someone who, who is a danger to Israel. That Israel exists in this temporary, fragile peace with the Roman occupiers. And when Jesus comes in and starts speaking, he sees him as rocking the boat and that he's going to bring Rome down right on top of them. And so, since he believes that Jesus is not the Messiah, and since he believes that Jesus' ministry is ultimately bad for Israel, he decides that the ministry of Jesus, the growth of Christianity, it has to be stopped really at any cost. So he begins as an opponent who is in opposition to Jesus. The second stage that we see Saul hit is that he comes to a place of realization. Okay, so number one, opposition. Number two, realization. When he hits realization, what happens is that he realizes that Jesus Christ is not dead. That he is in fact risen and alive. Now he knew that he had died. He knew that he had been buried. He knew that people were saying that he had risen from the dead, but he did not believe it. And that was what he was trying to stop, to prove that Jesus is not alive. But when Jesus speaks to him, he suddenly realizes that he is wrong. And that he is part of a group who is opposing Jesus Christ. Not only that, but he has now murdered people trying to to proclaim the name of Jesus. And in this moment comes the realization of, oh no, I have been on the wrong side. More than that, I have committed violence against Jesus, and violence against his followers. And with that realization came this slow panic, this slow fear of, oh no, what have I done? As the story goes on, he goes from opposition to realization to then third, repentance. In repentance, he realizes that although he was wrong, what he really deserves is God's punishment. What he really deserves is for Jesus to destroy him in the same way that he tried to destroy the church. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus strikes him blind, but then Jesus remains with him. He speaks to him in dreams. He tells him where to go. He then is with him through three days of blindness until eventually he is healed. Jesus never walks away from him. From the moment that Jesus grabs a hold of him, Jesus simply refuses to let him go. And as Saul realizes what God has done for him, he just simply changes his life. 
He changes his life really in two ways. The first thing is he begins to think about Jesus differently. He is not a false Messiah. He is not someone who is dangerous for Israel. He is, in fact, the very Son of God. And once he changes his mind, that causes him to change his life. He changes his mind, which causes him to change his life. He now suddenly begins to act differently. And the first place we see that is in stage four, confession. Verse 20, it says, it said, he begins to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. He has gone from an opponent to an advocate. He has gone from an unbeliever to a believer. He has gone from somebody who is an antagonist to now someone who is a witness of Jesus Christ. And in a sense, how could he not be? He had come to see that he was wrong. He had been stricken with blindness. He had been healed. He had heard and seen Jesus. And Jesus was remaining with him. So the only thing he can do now is be baptized and in a sense try to live his life in a way to undo all that he had done. And that is a driving force for him. Not that he's trying to earn his salvation, but he's trying to live with the sort of gratitude and devotion that he had missed in the beginning steps. Now, those four steps, opposition, realization, repentance, and confession, those are four stages that he walked through. And I believe that they are four stages that every person who's going to become a follower of Jesus, has to walk through as well. Let me go through them again one more time, but let me talk to you about them. Really, part of salvation is realizing every one of us is an opponent of Jesus before we believe in the gospel. In our unsaved state, before we actually come to know Jesus, when we're just a random person out in the world, doesn't matter who you are, you are actually an opponent and an enemy of God. Now, you may just be an intellectual enemy. When I say an intellectual enemy, what I mean is that you believe in that moment that Christianity might be good for somebody, it's just not good for you. That you have control of your life, and you like your life, and so it's okay if you follow the gospel. It's okay if you believe in Jesus. That's fine if it's for you. It's just simply not for me. I'm going to live my life my way, so just kind of live and let live. It's sort of a libertarian way of living your life. So you're not somebody who's violent. Just intellectually, you can't go there. You simply don't believe. It's good for you. It's not good for me. But there's a step beyond that. Because I think the step beyond that is that we become sort of a relational enemy of God. So if an intellectual enemy is, it's good for you, it's just not good for me, the sort of relational enemy is Jesus is bad for everybody. That this is the sort of thing that hurts people, that religion has been the cause of so much violence, it's restrictive, it oppresses women, it is bad for the world, it's outdated, it has all of these myths and all these morality clauses which simply cannot be true. And in that point, you look at Christianity and you think, this is one of the things that I wish would go away. I don't want Christianity to grow any further. You might experience in your life that if your kid wants to go to youth group, you say, honey, you don't need to go there. You don't want that for them because it's not just that Christianity isn't good for you. It's not good for anybody. And so there is this sort of uh, oppositional uh, relationship that you have with it. But as it grows even beyond that, there's a third stage. And I would say this is a sort of violent opposition to faith. That means that you are now actively involved in stopping the growth of Christianity because you believe that it is not only bad, it's something that has to be stopped. I think of 
uh, when we were trying to grow Rolling Hills Covenant and we were trying to plant another, uh, we were trying to grow the campus. Man, there are people that absolutely were opposed to ever seeing a bigger church. That's the kind of opposition we're talking about. People who will do whatever they can in their spheres of influence to keep the church from growing or from people going to faith that it needs to be voted against and something that needs to be fought against at every, every place that you can. There can be that sort of level of hostility. So when we look at this, I would say that in these three different sort of levels of opposition, you can kind of find where you are, but regardless, if you're not a Christian, you are at one of those levels. It's either not good for you, or it's not good for others, or it's one of those things that has to be stopped. Now for us, realization, that second stage, it is that moment when we realize that we have judged God unfairly. Now maybe what happens is that uh, we suddenly find ourselves in a place of crisis. And a Christian comes alongside of us and they pray for us. And although we don't believe at all, somehow that prayer is answered by God through that other person's faith. And in that moment, there suddenly is the realization of, oh, maybe this is real. Or maybe we encounter a Christian and suddenly there's a witness that they bring that we think they have something that I don't have, and I'm looking for what they have, but I have not been able to find it anywhere. Or maybe you finally walked into a church for whatever reason that you did, and you suddenly found that it, it, it was okay. You liked it, and it worked. Now, in that moment, once realization hits, suddenly we become disarmed, because we then realize that, oh, maybe I have been looking down on God, but really maybe it's God who's looking down on me. I thought I was the judge, but maybe there actually is a judge above me. Maybe I've, I've had this whole thing wrong. Maybe I don't have all of the answers. And in that moment, we feel that same fear and panic about what exactly does it mean. And in that, in that moment, we too are led to a place of usually repentance. And repentance is that place where, again, we begin to change our lives by changing our thoughts. That we then come to believe that there is a God and believe that Jesus cares and believe that he listens to prayers and believe that there's something to be found there. And as I change my mind about who God is, it begins to come out into my life so that I become changed as well. Until finally we move into what I would call the fourth stage, proclamation, where you and I begin to proclaim the graciousness of God in a graceless world. That you and I begin to talk about who Jesus is. And friends, there could not be a greater need for a message of grace than today. Because like I said, our world is just graceless. We had, we had a funny interaction with our kids this last week. We were cleaning out the garage, and we found this old costume box that we'd had from when the kids were just, you know, the, the costumes in there are probably 25 years old. They're handed down from grandparents. And as we're going through these things, we found like a Native American outfit. Like that would have been like for, if you're going to be an Indian for Halloween. And Melinda looked at it and said, maybe we could save it for Piper. Maybe she could wear it one day. And my son Colin said, Colin said bro, you're going to get her canceled if she wears that. <laughs> Which was such a funny thing for your kid to tell you. You're going to get your kid canceled. And I thought about it for a moment. I was like, you know, you're probably right. You, you know, if you were to wear that today, that is not okay to wear any longer. You probably could have gotten away with it five years ago, but now there's all of these things that are now not okay to say or do. And look, not to pass any judgment on that about cancel or whether or not you should or shouldn't wear that costume, but the reality of our world today is there are now more rules about what is right and what is wrong than have ever existed. 
And ultimately, there are so many rules that all of us are going to violate them at some point. And when you violate them at some point, you now experience that moment of you now have done something wrong that cannot be forgiven, so much so that we use the phrase canceled, that now you're done and you could be kind of rejected and shoved aside as we begin to pursue the sort of more enlightened progressive thought. But again, every one of us will violate a rule at some point, and so sooner or later, every one of us will be canceled. It's, the new, it's just the new legalism. And if there is this new legalism that we're living in, then sooner or later, if we're all going to be canceled, every one of us is going to need grace, and we're not going to receive it. And so the message of the gospel that there is a grace that is available to you regardless of what you've done and regardless of how many times you've done it, that there's a grace from Jesus Christ that is available where he will forgive and remove and make you new. That message has never been more sticky and powerful and attractive than a world that has essentially purged grace from this vocabulary. And so witnessing is something that is more important now than it has ever happened. Now, we watch Saul go through all of these four stages in a matter of days. In three days, he went from opponent to witness because there is a change that God can do in us quickly, that he can quickly turn our lives around. He can quickly change our mind. He can quickly wash away our sins. He can quickly make us new, and he can take us from opponents and witnesses and change us like that. That is the message of the gospel, that God can change your life right now. He can change your mind about him. He can change your status before him, and your life can change in this moment. But there is also another level of change that is just as wonderful, but it is far slower that God wants to do in our lives. I want to go over to Galatians 1, 17 to 18. I want to read this passage. I think we'll put it up here on the side screen. This is Paul talking about this passage, but this is his first-hand account about what happened after he was saved. He said, I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later I returned to Damascus, and then after three years I went to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. So, what ends up happening in the book of Acts is it tells the story really quickly. Paul gets saved. Paul preaches. Paul runs away. He goes to Jerusalem. He meets the disciples. He's attacked there. It all looks like it happens in a matter of moments. But in Galatians, he says, I got saved, and then I disappeared. He says, for three years, I went out into Arabia. I went out into the desert. Isn't that fascinating? So there is this gap of time that exists in the book of Acts that we just don't see because Luke's trying to tell the story quickly. But after he got saved, there were three years where he went off into the wilderness and we know almost nothing about what he does. There's a lot of theories about what he does. In Arabia is uh, Mount Horeb. Now this is the mountain where Elijah hears from God. This is the mountain where Moses meets with God. And so some people think he is at Mount Horeb having this divine interaction with God. He's going to the place where God descends on the earth. So Saul's in Arabia so he could be at Mount Horeb, which maybe. Uh, some people say that he's there for three years. So what he's doing those three years is that he's being discipled by Jesus for the same amount of time that the apostles were discipled by him. So in a sense, he's getting his religious education out in Arabia for Jesus, which is maybe. And, and other people say he's learning the gospel there. 
that it's there that he's learning that the gospel is available not only for Jews or for Gentiles. Really, we don't know what he is doing, but I think it's pretty clear why he is doing it. He just needs time. Think about his entire life. It says that he was one of the wisest, sharpest, smartest people in Israel. He knew the law inside and out. Chances are Saul has the entire Old Testament memorized, and yet he misses the Messiah. Perhaps nobody knew as much about the Bible as him, and yet he could not see Jesus for the Son of God because he was religious, but he wasn't godly. I made that point last week. That he had gotten caught up in the religion of Judaism. That he had gotten caught up in the laws and the identity and how it meant something to their culture. But he wasn't actually godly. That beyond all of the knowledge was an incredibly violent man. And so he needs three years to undo some of that. He needs three years to reflect on himself. He needs three years to open up the Bible and go, so how did I miss it? He needs three years to study, to process, to learn, and to understand. And that is something that he cannot do quickly because it didn't happen quickly. That sort of change is something that can only happen slow. I'll I'll try to give you an example this way. Have you ever remodeled a house? When you remodel a house, there are things that happen quick and there are things that happen slow. Uh, you can go out to uh, across the street over by the St. Andrews uh, parking lot. There's a house that's being remodeled right there. It is a great example of it. All of a sudden, the walls go up, and you think this thing's going to happen ahead of schedule, and then it sits for a month. Now, you think nothing is happening, but in the time after the walls go up, the wires are being run. The foundation is being anchored to the walls. The plumbing is going underneath the floor. You see, it looks like nothing is happening, but now the slow work happens. Once the walls go up and the plumbing and the electricity is run, then the drywall goes up, and it seems like you basically have a house, and then it slows down again because you got to get new permits and inspections. And the entire house is a process of fast and slow. And friends, this is what it's like to be changed by God. There is the fast change that God can do in a moment in our lives. And it's real and powerful. And then there is the slow process of change that takes time and space and silence. Look, I think sometimes we're really good at embracing the fast level of change. We're really good at saying, God, I want you to come into my life and I want you to change it, but we're terrible at the slow pace of change. Let me, let me put it this way. We're really good at saying, I'm fried at work right now. I need a cup of coffee so I can kind of revive my mind so I could work better. We're really great at kind of professionally pacing ourselves. Uh, we're pretty good at taking vacations. That I am fried physically, I'm exhausted, I need to take a vacation so I could rest my body, so my body can heal. We can do that as well, but we are terrible at saying, my soul is tired, my soul needs to grow, and so I need to step away so my heart and soul can grow. We simply don't know how to do that. In fact, I think 99.9% of Christians have never gotten away to simply be in silence and solitude and to listen and reflect and study and hear from God. We just don't know how to do it. It's not a value. I think, in fact, in terms of the, the tradition of Protestantism, which we come from, the emphasis is putting on working, not on thinking. 
on doing, not on praying. On activity, not contemplation. And here's the deal. There is nobody who is as bad at this as me. When you consider our team, I am surrounded by contemplative, quiet, thoughtful, prayerful people. And I just want to answer emails. But what I can tell you is that even in my weakness towards this, I still get away probably twice a year for personal, quiet time with the Lord by myself. Usually two to three days. Last year I was in Catalina for two or three days just praying and listening because I know that the way life works is that it is so fast as that will squeeze God out or making it personal. That my mind is so busy and I'm so addicted to my phone and so committed to my friends and my kids that unless I stop, I'll squeeze God right out of my life. You see, and when that happens, what that means is that we come to this place of confessing that we are a follower of Jesus, but there remains all of this shallowness in our relationship with our God, with God with him, where we simply call ourselves Christian by name, and we truly are Christians, but we're not being changed on the inside and out, not even to a level of our own satisfaction. You see, change in scripture happens fast and slow, and too often we are only committed to the fast, and we are not willing to do the slow. Paul's life after this moment, is going to explode with spirit-filled direction and wind and movement. He is going to become a person that God is going to use in profound ways, but it's going to happen both fast and slow because he is doing the complete work of what God wants him to do. So let me ask you, as we hit this year, how are you going to change this year spiritually? Look, I hope you guys are reading your Bibles. Lord knows I love the Bible. I hope that you guys are devoted to coming to church. I'm really a big fan of going to church. I mean, I lead a church. But how are you going to give space in your life for God to do the quieter, deeper, more intimate work in your heart so that that level of change can happen? Friends, if you are frustrated with where you're at, if you're tired of being in the shallow end of your faith, if ultimately you want to see God do more in your life and more in your lives of people around you, if ultimately you want your life to have greater significance for him, there's only one way to do it, and it's to step away from the pace of life and to begin to contemplate. Look, Jesus steps away constantly so we could hear from the Lord. If Jesus needs that, how much more so you and I? If Jesus' own ministry needs the empowerment of time away, reflection, prayer, study, and listening to God, then why would I ever think that somehow I can do it by going to church once a week and having a quiet time twice a week? If Jesus needs it more than you and I need so much more of it, and we know that we have a God who is waiting for us there, not to shame us or beat us, beat us up or say it's about time, you never evited to come to this thing, but you're finally here, but to welcome us here because he wants to. That could be you this year. There could be a level of change that's available for you if you're willing to both slow down and listen and hear. Let me pray. Lord, Lord, we had our lives slowed down a lot in the past year. And God, we, uh, we don't want to slow it down anymore. We want to go back on vacation. We want to go back and be with friends. We want to get back out to the things that we used to do. Uh, we want to go and do. And Lord, that's really good. 
But God, I know that you also want us to stop and be with you. And Lord, that goes against all of our instincts, all of our desires. But God, I know that you're waiting for us, and I know that there's more for us. And so God, would you give us the courage to create space, to create margin, to do something really uncomfortable, to risk kind of going crazy with the silence in order to meet you in it. We know that you're waiting there, God. And in doing so, would you truly change us? We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. Well, tonight we get the joy of taking communion together. Uh, we were cautious to do communion originally only because of COVID and all the things that we're dealing with. But ultimately, we believe that there's something that God does when we partake communion together. There is a feeding that he does to our soul that can't happen any other way. There's a nourishment that only happens as we partake. And so I'm excited that we get to do this here together today. This is the Lord's table. It is open to all who believe and who profess faith in Jesus Christ. And it is Jesus Christ himself who invites us to this meal. This food is for the journey to which Christ has called us. And so let our lives be nourished by the Lord himself as we celebrate together at this table. And would you respond with me? We come to this table not because we must, but because we may. We come not because we are strong, but because we are weak. We come not because we have any claim on the grace of God, but because of our frailty and sin. We come and profess our constant need for God's mercy and help, and we come seeking God's presence and praying for the Spirit. Let's stand together. <clears throat>